In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Majushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Welcome, nice to see you. Those of you who I can see, nice to see you. And uh, so tonight we dive into, or we start off rather with uh, some discussion of the philosophical uh, position, so to speak, of Nagarjuna before we dive back into the texts. And um, so I was thinking we could start by going through the definitions, lay some groundwork, and then come back to the uh, articles, the essays that were in tonight's reading. And uh, in this course in particular, I would love to encourage people to chime in and challenge or uh, help clarify what's being presented. And not assume that everything that any particular author presents is always completely true. But challenge it and really, really try to uh, get the essence, the, the correct, what, what you feel is correct from it. So Swabhava, self-existence on page 183. Hopefully the pagination is the same for all of us. This book for Nagarjuna Swabhava is whatever would give something the power to exist and to have the properties it has. Something existing by its own intrinsic nature is no way produced by causes and conditions, but exists independent of all causes and conditions. Okay, so first two sentences. The first one is an attempt to present the notion of Swabhava, which is a Sanskrit word meaning self-nature as it's understood in the Abhidharma tradition. And this is the projection of, uh, this is the Garjana's take on the Abhidharma system's understanding of Swabhava. And um, it's the way that the Abhidharma system's understanding of Swabhava is contextualized or understood throughout uh, at least the Madhyamaka system in general, if not the uh, Mahayana system, is that entities have 
um, have the the power to exist, the ability to exist, and entities have certain properties or certain aspects or characteristics or ways in which they exist. So we say fire exists and it has the qualities of being burning and hot and so forth. The second sentence is says something rather different, something that exists by its own intrinsic nature. So for starters, we've entered in a terminology that did not exist in the first sentence and was not necessarily something that was stated in the Abhidharma tradition, but as far as I can tell, is a way that the Madhyamaka Mahayana tradition um, has understood the Abhidharma system to be using the term Swabhava to some extent. And uh, it, it, it also seems to some extent that it's uh, an exaggeration meant to uh, prove a point. And the point seems to be that if dharmas are considered to be intrinsically existent, then that creates a, a problem for understanding them in other ways, for understanding the other aspects of those phenomena. And excuse me one moment while I get my glass of water that I left out of reach by mistake. Can anybody have any comments so far? I have a comment now that you're back. <laughs> my comment well, I had my headset on so I could have heard it. But anyway, hi. My, my my comment is that it would be really interesting to look at the Abhidharma texts and see if to, to what extent these are exaggerations or to what extent these are kind of uh, implicit commitments the Abhidharmists are making philosophically. It's about time we did that, isn't it? Because this comes up all the time, this idea that there's this projection from one system onto another. Yeah, because if, how, if, if, the if the Abhidharmists are able to present uh, a defense that withstands Madhyamakan scrutiny, then that would be a pretty big thing. So, you know, we should exhaust that possibility before we fully jump into the yeah. Madhyamaka end of the pool. It would be a, a really big deal, and it makes sense to do that. Do we have any volunteers? <laughs> you know, so part of the situation is like, what What are the so-called Abhidharma texts? He doesn't give any sources, Nagarjuna. He doesn't refer to any specific text when he makes this claim. Nor have I ever seen any other Madhyamaka text cite a specific source. Hmm. So, uh, but I, 
I would be willing to look into this situation. Anybody want to join me in that? I'd be somewhat interested. I, I like Abhidharma. Um, um, is there, was there, um, like the, the Abhidharma predated the Madhyamaka in terms of its um, beginnings, but were there, at the time that the Madhyamakans were making their statements like this during the whatever hundreds of years that Nagarjuna was around and others, were there still active Abhidharmists who would debate on these things, or is it a question of two different time frames altogether and they never sort of met? Okay, what was the first part of your question? Uh... It was only one question. I was just making a, a general statement that I'm, my understanding is that Abhidharma arose before Madhyamaka arose. Yes, yes, yes. So, thank you. Okay, so... Um... You know, there's the idea of the tripitaka, the three baskets of the, the Buddhist teachings. And um, as we've gone through in some other classes, the Abhidharma Pitaka, according to scholarly research, did not appear at the same time as the first two Pitakas. So we had not a tripitaka, but a duo Pitaka initially of just the Sutra and the Vinaya. And the uh, uh, in the textual historical record, the Abhidharma Pitaka appears later. And there's also this odd situation where certain of the early schools view the have Abhidharma texts that are different from other early schools. And uh, I think in the Theravadan tradition. The Abhidharma texts are attributed to the Arhats, and in one of the other early traditions of Buddhism, they are attributed to the Buddha. And so they're literally two separate sets of, of texts, seven in each case, uh, that cover similar material, though. Um, so there's those sources, and then there's what's called the uh, uh, para-canonical texts that are commentaries on the canon, or the, the actual uh, texts attributed to the Buddha. And um, those appeared gradually over time. And uh, the most famous of those, don't appear until about 500 of the Common Era, composed by Buddha Gosha, who composes the Path to Purification. And so he's obviously well after the appearance of Nagarjuna, if we stick with the sort of idea of Nagarjuna as living like a normal human from about 150 to 250 of the Common Era. Um, so it's a question of finding what are the earliest appearing Abhidharma texts that might have been the uh, source of Nagarjuna's claim about them, and then checking those out. And presumably it's the, the actual Abhidharma Pitaka texts of one tradition or another. Now the 
only one set of them is translated into English. So uh, we can look at, at that set and, uh, and see what they have in terms of this. So I guess my, my question about that, and I see, I guess you've somewhat answered it, that there, that the, this person, Buddha Gosha, who did this, these writings may have coexisted at the time of Nagarjuna. So, so the question then is, <clears throat> did they ever act, did they actively respond to his? No, you missed a, a key point of that, of what I said. He lived somewhere about 500 of the common era. So he was hundreds of years after after Nagarjuna. Yeah. So, okay. So, so the same question is: Did they did they respond to Nagarjuna? Then it it, it... no. No, they... Cynthia. Nagarjuna was hundreds of years after the Abhidharma. Well, um, texts. So Nagar Nagarjuna came much later. That well, that that's what I was saying at first. But then what I was asking was: Were there any? Sort of actively writing Abhidharmists still, uh, you know, were there any people that still espoused Abhidharma sufficiently to contest or refute anything that was a critique of Abhidharma at, you know, during or after the time of Nagarjuna? Does that make any sense? Yeah. So just uh, once again, the time frame is we have we have the teachings attributed to the Buddha that appear. Uh, somewhere between uh, two and three or four hundred years after his uh, his supposed dates of of life, and uh, so that would place the Abhidharma appearance of the Abhidharma text somewhere like in around uh, one hundred before the Common Era, and then a couple hundred years later we have the appearance of Nagarjuna. And then some 300 years later, we have uh, the gentleman Buddha Gosha, whose commentaries on the Abhidharma texts are the main ones that um, uh, exist within the Theravadan tradition to this day. So if you if you look at their um, set of of uh, Polytrepitaka plus commentaries, they will have his commentaries and very few commentaries by anyone else. And then the question specifically that you're asking is, did any Abhidharmists respond to Nagarjuna? Not to my knowledge. They, they, those emails were, have been lost. Right. I, I was going to say, give me the emails and I'll go talk to them, right? Um, so it's really a question of just comparing how they presented themselves versus how others were presenting them. It's not a question of being able to find Buddha Gosha's statement saying this is where Nagarjuna has has misunderstood us. There, yeah, that yeah. you don't think it's that direct, probably. Yeah, you know, and it's an interesting point about the history of Buddhism is that there's a, a number of different um, Buddhist masters. Uh, well, uh, of the many Buddhist masters who appear over time, uh, many of them appear to either not be aware of the other ones or to uh, not be at all concerned with them and they just don't address them. So like, uh, as far as I know, a Sangha does not really ad address Nagarjuna's, Nagarjuna's system directly. 
as far as I know, and nor does Vasubandhu, who is the author of the famous Abhidharma Kosha, which is said to be the condensation of a, a massive, many thousand page compendium called the Mahavibhasha, which my understanding is, is that it's just like putting together like a hundred different texts, uh, which were presumably commentaries on uh, the sutras and the Abhidharmas, and the Abhidharma Pitaka texts in particular, um, just like a big box full of different texts uh, without any sort of synthesis, synthesizing happening to them. And so his his Abhidharma Kosha was a massive feat in that it's, he synthesized all of that information into, I think, 11 chapters thematically presenting the essence of that system. You know, so to some extent we could look at the Abhidharma Kosha, even though it's written hundreds of years later, and see how he presents dharmas. So it sounds like we have, say, two sources, then Buddha Gosha and Vasubandhu, the Kosha. Yeah, they're, you know, but the odd thing is they're both after Nagarjuna. Um, right. So there are other Abhidharma texts, and it's a matter of finding which ones are said to be the earliest. So, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting what you're saying, that, that some of them, like what you're saying about some of these masters sort of ignoring or not knowing or not being aware, and yet there's these other ones, issues where they're such hot topics and they're always debating and very, you know, so it's kind of interesting the difference, whether it's, as you say, just not aware and therefore they couldn't debate, or whether it's that uh, they deliberately chose not to and the topic wasn't hot enough. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really an unknown. I've never never really seen any Western scholars address the issue. Um, you know, obviously India is a vast place, and uh, they didn't particularly have printing presses, or uh, Amazon did not exist at the time, and so. You know, the sharing of Buddhist texts was not the uh, the most methodical thing in the world. And, uh, Derek, haven't, haven't you told us? <laughs> it, I mean, I know this is slightly later, but at Nalanda University, at Nalanda, they had not just Mahayana teachings. I mean, that these debates that we're trying to wonder what they'd be like were going on for centuries. We're, I mean, there were non-Mahayana Abhidharma was being taught there, and there were clearly Mahayana and, and Madhyamaka famous figures coming out of Nalanda. So they must have been like, not just ignoring each other on campus. Or... Well, this is an, uh, yeah, another interesting question. So then uh, let's start with where is, when, when did the Nalanda that you're talking about? Well, I mean, begin? that would be hundreds of years after what we're talking now, but I, I feel like right. they would be building, <laughs> but that they would be continuing a debate that had been going on to the period that we're talking about, that they would be continuing a debate, like an active debate. Yeah, maybe a lot more. So to some, you know, it's uncertain to what extent that debate occurred, but, but yeah, certainly it didn't just start then, and that debate had been ongoing. And we have seen many, many references to to the situation of monasteries having Mahayana and so-called Hinayana or, or Staviravada. Um, I just remember like, you telling us that, that, yes, in the monasteries, in the and that, they were mixing, like they could mix together. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. yeah. I guess the point is that you would think they would have, if we're noticing this, they would have noticed it too. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it says yeah. something in the answering of objections. Yeah, maybe in that text. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Cynthia, maybe you can start. You know, Google Abhidharma literature and see if you can come up. I know there's a couple of very good articles on it. See if you can come up with one that presents them in chronolo any sort of chronological order. And then uh, there, there are probably about four or five main Abhidharma texts outside of the canon that have been translated. And I'll look and see what their dating is. Um, but they're probably later than the Garjana. Um, so, so at the end of the day, we probably have to look at texts that are later than the Garjana and see how they're presenting the issue of Swabhava and assume that it's not that different from what was present at the time of Nagarjuna and that he was reacting to. Uh, but there's, there's no, there's, you know, I don't know of any record other than like, as Eric said, some of these texts have objections, you know, with fictitious objectors interest in, in put in place who are saying, you know, well, what about this and that? And we can presume that those are representing other, other Buddhist or non-Buddhist traditions. But something existing by its own intrinsic nature is in no way produced by causes and conditions, but exists independent of all causes and conditions. So the author gives a reference to uh, the Mula Madhyamaka Karika by Nagarjuna, um, which is therefore Nagarjuna's uh, definition of something existing in its own intrinsic nature. And this is, uh, you know, the, this is really the crux of the whole of Nagarjuna and Madhyamaka, Nagarjuna's and Nagar Madhyamaka's philosophy is that if something is truly existing, it's unchanging, it's independent, it's not produced by causes and conditions because it is what it is, regardless of what happens to it. Otherwise, it's not what it is because it just changes over time. And then, you know, you can look at a different time periods and say, well, it's, a, it's an apple, no, later it's an orange, and later on it's a car, and so on and so forth. So this idea that for something to be truly existent, it, it's like this uh, uh, imaginary um, un, uh, thing in that it's unchanging, independent, um, and unitary. It can't, you can't crack it open and divide it into parts, and you can't impact it in any way. You can't change, it because ch impacting it subjecting it to causes and conditions would change what it is. And if something's just changing, then it's not really what it is. So he's he's not saying that, you know, so it, it would be unusual for anybody to put forward this idea that there are unchanging, independent, completely independent, and um, unitary phenomena. 
Chris. Unusual when described in those ways, but of course it's something that we do all the time, like constantly in every moment of the day. <laughs> you know, we make we make assumptions that there's there's such a thing as myself. There's such a thing as a laptop. There's such a thing as a Zoom meeting. There's such a thing as Buddhism. You know, um, it's it's very handy uh, to have uh, concepts that are stable, and that's why they're um, so prevalent. Um, so it's I mean you know it's it's very easy to talk about how absurd these things are, but then you know uh, <laughs> to try taking that on the road with you. Thank you for that. I I neglected to say it would be odd for anyone to put that, any Buddhist to put that forward as a philosophical view. Um, you know, so if we look at, look at what we, uh, on the, you know, so the sort of simplest way of looking at Abhidharma is that Abhidharma presents a list of the, the existing phenomena that uh, starts with matter and and uh, then moves on to mind and those are the two main categories and matter includes uh, the four great elements earth water fire and air and then it includes the subtle matter that makes up the senses and then it includes matter that is derivative of earth water and fire air by different combinations of the same And so would they say that earth is unchanging and is uncaused and unproduced and um, singular? Would they say that of water? Would they say that of air and fire? When they talk about those things. I, I was reading something recently that was saying that they don't really mean literally earth, water, fire, but they mean the, those, the qualities of those, like, you know, cohesion and warmth, heat and um, solidity and all those things. Um, <clears throat> which well, that, that was in a certain, well, we've, we've discussed that a number of times and, and the, the times that we've discussed it, it's been within a context that is a, a later development of Madhyamaka thought, and that includes this, the um, the understanding that those elements are qualities and not entities. And so, the you know, this is a very important issue. There's there's an idea that there's entities in our world and that entities have qualities and you know to jump to the conclusion Nagarjuna is saying that all entities have the quality of being empty uh, all sorry all all entities have no uh, all things are empty of entity here we go the third tries the charm isn't it doesn't that mean there are no entities i mean rather than wait saying, wait 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 you gotta you can't okay you, gotta, you might miss something if you cut to the chase too quickly you never know um all things are without identity ultimately and yet 
they have the quality of arising dependently. So we have this division between ontology on the one hand and ontology um, any any ontology about the world does not hold water logically and other than that things are empty of an ontological being and then there's function or nature or qualities and the main quality that all phenomena have is that they arise interdependently and so so emptiness and interdependence which we've seen talked about last week and we'll see endlessly as being uh, sort of synonymous or sort of um, uh, being the support for emptiness and vice versa are really two different ways of looking at phenomena. There's ent looking at their ontological being and there's looking at how they um, function, entity and function. And so the projection is that in the Abhidharma we have earth, water, fire, and air are entities that possess the qualities of solidity, cohesion, um, burning, and uh, lightness, or whatever it is, the qualities of fire and water, fire and air are. So let's see, something existing by its own intrinsic nature is no way produced by cause and condition, but exists independent of all causes and conditions. Nor is it derived from something else that is real. So if there's one real thing, then, you know, can that one real thing split into other real things that are different from it? That doesn't really make sense. A self-existent entity is absolutely independent and exists by its own power. Its nature and existence are due only to it itself. In Tibetan Buddhism, it is characterized as what exists from its own side. That, that phrase that you've seen before, it is the source of its own essence which is a little bit weird to say that it's the source of its own essence and is self-maintaining. So we have like the self-enclosed system where we have these isolated entities floating around in the universe, closed, basically closed off from each other, not ever interacting and, and impacting each other, not changing. You know, so clearly there's been statements that have been taken to the uh, to their logically absurd, extreme con possible conclusion. If we say that there's Earth, if Earth exists and possesses hardness. 
Such a power would also make each entity exist distinct from all other entities. No self-existent thing could be in any way dependent upon any other, and thus it would be self-contained. No English term captures its dual aspects as making its own nature and existing independent of all causing conditions. Translators render it variously as self-existing, self-being, etc. Self-causing, generating, existent by itself, own being, own becoming, own source, own cause, own nature, inherent nature, intrinsic nature, essential nature, essence, substance, inherent being, it probably should be left untranslated, but it has been translated here as self-existence or self-nature, depending on the context. So I translated it as self-nature, and uh, he's saying it should be self-existence or self-nature. So what's the difference between self-existence and self-nature? Chris. <laughs> really? Okay. Um, okay, so self-existence self just refers to the ontological foundation and self-nature is some, something more about equality, I guess? I, I, I'm kind of rehashing what you just said. It seems that way, doesn't it? It seems that that's the two alternatives of that term. Self-existent is ontological and self-nature is functional. Depending on context. Self-existence is necessary for anything. And we have the Sanskrit bhava of any type to be real. So if we have the term bhava as being thing and we have swabhava, why has he not translated swabhava as own thing? There's a term that's used in Western philosophy a lot called thing in itself. Yeah, this, that, this is it, right? Equivalent. Yeah. Yeah, this would definitely be the equivalent, the thing in itself. Um, would, are you su suggesting that as an equivalent for bhava or swabhava? Swabhava. Thank you. I concur. Self-existence is necessary for anything of any type to be real. So the idea that um, the self-existence, the swabhava, is what makes a bhava real. So bhava, a bhava is a bhava by virtue of its swabhava, if that makes any sense, leaving its leaving the Sanskrit as, as Sanskrit instead of putting it into English, in the hopes that that conveys something more about the situation. Can I just ask, in terms of we're when we're in definition mode here of all these other words, what does real mean, and who made up the definition of real in this context? Yeah, what does real mean, and uh, who made up, who decided what real meant? Now, I, I, I'm scanning what we've just gone through, and I don't see the word real. Do you? Uh, in that last, uh, in that oh, sentence of right any there. type to be real. Ah, okay. Sat, <laughs> sat. <laughs> That's like sat dharma. That sat. 
Yeah, real dharma. So what do we translate sat dharma as? True dharma, I think, in, I think that's what they called it, true dharma, dharma, I don't know. Yes, yes. So what does true mean in, in true dharma? Genuine, I don't know. Um, Corresponding to reality, thus real. That's a Websterian circular definition, you mean? What was circular about it? Oh, oh, I mean, you know, when they definition, you know, real is that's what corresponds with reality or something. That's that's what I consider a circular definition. No, true. I'm saying true right. is what corresponds to reality. Right. But, and therefore the translation real. OK, so so then what if we say that then that would mean self-existence is necessary for any thing bhava of any type to correspond with reality does that make sense true to be true to be genuine to be actual correspond with reality makes it feel kind of like an epistemic claim rather than like a metaphysical claim you know yeah i'm just i guess what i'm saying is that whether we call it true or real it's like what does that actually mean if 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 it's that this is always the challenge when we get into this whole issue of you know defining existence and all that is that I think that 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 question is like the core of Nagarjuna's whole program is like interrogating the nonsensicality of like reality <laughs> you know that that you you can't you can't actually make make a definition of what is real that that holds water right because why because it can't withstand analysis because it can't withstand analysis say more it's it can't withstand analysis (laughs) yeah that's kind of a little too much of a cliche yeah we can find the inconsistency in what we think we formulated and also that that we can't use language to define um, what what is real. We can't use uh, what, what can we use. What you what can we use to determine what's real? We can only describe what it is. But how do we determine whether something's real? Experientially. Yours? No, enlightened beings. <laughs> <laughs> we have to make up some mythical saying. characters. That's what Nagarjuna ends up saying: is that we we can't use language to describe it because those are concepts, and it's beyond concepts. And so, and what's this way, it? What's this it? Svabhavika, or <laughs> yeah. I think what I was sort of driving at is uh, the determination of something is real is only in dependence upon our reference points. And, it's, it's a completely relative to the person. Statement. It's relative to the person, the person, situation, the, whoever is the, the, the system, the goal, experiential. Yeah. So what you know, what we say when we say something is real, it's based on like common consensus, common basically. Consensus, exactly. Personal. Or expert witness. You know, we have an expert witness. 
we bring like uh, somebody who's an expert in reality up to the stage, and you said an enlightened being. So we would bring a, a Buddha to the witness stand and swear them in on a Bible, <laughs> you know, and and like hold up some dirt and say, "Is this real?" <laughs> what would the Buddha say? Is this real? This dirt? Is this real dirt? We depend how he assesses our where we are in our path, <laughs> what he might say to us. He'd just hold up a flower. Oh, and <laughs> smile. Well, he would, he would talk about if, it as being an aggregate. If, if there aren't reference to use to describe something, that means language, the way it's constructed, is insufficient. Oh, shit. Might as well cancel the rest of the class. <laughs> it might be, but it still might be necessary. Oh, it's necessary. Well, we can verify or... through our senses. So you can describe it. I can touch it. I can hand it to you. You can touch it, feel it, smell it, see what it. What if somebody's blind? They can't see it. Yeah. So it doesn't exist? No, they're the outlier. You toss them out. <laughs> right. So it's based on popular <laughs> it's based on popular consensus, which is yeah, the it rule is. of it's the still consensus, but it's a a consensus more through our senses than the language. And and that's what do you think he's getting at is I I just wanted I mean I, I, obviously all of this is true. We're we're in a we're trying to deal with the non conceptual using words and concepts. But I just wanted to make sure that we, I just didn't want that word to sort of fly by without being. No, I appreciate that. Thank you for pointing that out. That is a very important I'm, term. I'm still not, yeah, I'm still not entirely sure, um, you know, whether he's making real the same as permanent, well, non-unit, I mean, permanent. Well, unit. let's see. Let's see what he says yeah. in the next sentence. He may clarify that. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. That was that was a pun, or joke. Anyway, what ex, what exists by Swabhava has been sought. So he's just translated the same Sanskrit term differently. I noticed separated that by like yeah. five other words. That is a little disturbing. Yeah, it <laughs> is disturbing. What exists by Swabhava has been sought, and and. Uh, Okay, being and cannot be created. So what what exists by its own nature cannot be created, and uh, that's sort of a linguistic definition. In that, own nature means it's done its own work, and if something else created it, then it would be like other nature. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm extrapolating too far, but, but it does exists. look like you're sort of reiterating the the you know kind of independent, separate. Yes, over and over again. We'll see. Yeah. Um, cannot be created, or come to be, or cease to exist, to be eliminated, or or sorry, or be eliminated. That's a heavy proposition, or otherwise be affected by any action or anything else. What is self-existent cannot change. Mm 
you know, so if you said this to an Abhidharma person, they would be like, that's absurd. Everything's changing. Yeah. That's the fundamental first teaching of the Buddha is impermanence. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, um, so you're, you're putting forward a system of real entities that are uh, constantly changing. So in what sense are they real if they're changing? The, every time you look at them, they might be something different. That is the real. That is, that's reality, right? <laughs> that, is, that is our reality. Things change and they're different every time you look at them. Um, thus, any entity existing by its own nature would be eternal. All things that exist through self-existence would be permanent, eternal, because they would have no cause and what is without a cause is permanent. So, you know, there's certain aspects of this that the so-called hypothetical straw man Abhidharmas would agree with, that everything changes, nothing is permanent, and yet they're like, well, come on, you know, there's fire, there's earth, and there's water, and how can we deny that those things are here? Let's be reasonable. Um... All things that exist through self-existence would be permanent because it would no, have no cause. And what is without a cause is permanent. Something that does not exist by self-existence or its own nature cannot be a cause since it is not real. What? <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't anticipate, but that seems a little questionable because since it seems to me that he's putting up that same straw man here all of this is really just setting up the same straw man of the impossibility of a uh, a thing an independent thing and that therefore i guess it, it sounds like real is equated with that and that but then that would mean that all the i mean in interdependence the it, that would say that that in interdependence, that do they not consider things causes in interdependence? No. Oh, okay. They're not because that's 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 the common misconception about yeah. inter interdependence. As normally people say, well, everything is interdependent, and they conceptualize the things, things of our world as being real things and that they're all related to each other. But the, the true understanding of interdependence is that there's no separate things. Which is what I was asking in the previous part, yeah, why, whether we were actually talking about entities in that way at all. Okay. Let's get real, huh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is the question we were asking before. I remember we studied this in Vasubandhu, this question of Svabhava and what you're talking about, earth, wind, fire. And I found it in the readings, like the Svabhavaham. I found the in the compendium of matter. It was from a course we did a few years ago. And it talks about earth has Svabhavaham Rupa. I mean, we, we, we went through this once. That's great. Yeah, that's right. There so it is. We and did what do we course. remember of that is, of course, the question. Yeah, the es essence of Abhidharma. And it was... Uh, a yeah. translation of a, a text by Vasubandhu um, 
called the punch the punch hook uh punch, yeah. so, something about the the five aggregates the five uh punches gonda uh, something or other, and then a commentary by Stiramati, and he goes through all the dharmas, like the the hundred dharmas or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So let's take a look at that. All on the website. I'll circulate a little excerpt of that from that. Um, Well, I guess it does answer the question because it was saying, like, where is he getting this from? And I was like, no, they use the term Svabhava. Like, he's put now, Nagarjuna is pushing back against Svabhava heaps. Yeah, so the question is, do they use it as nature? That every phenomenon it's, has It's translated nature? as intrinsic nature. Like, these are the elements with intrinsic nature in Rupa form and then in mind. Yeah. Well, where's the intrinsic part? Yeah. You know, the... Intrinsic has a meaning in English that implies an ontological exi existence. Whereas swa, like, it has a self-nature. You could simply say that's its own nature. Everything has a nature of its own. And that's how we distinguish one thing from another. Because if, if things didn't have their own nature, then everything that we experience would be one blur. Nothing but vanilla. Vanilla all the way, right? So it would, you know, so clearly things each have some distinction, distinguishing qualities, and those are their unique distinguishing qualities. And we're not saying that they exist forever, and we're not, and we're also not saying that they're ultimately real necessarily. It seems like that's possible. I mean, that's why I mentioned this thing, the notion of yeah, who's saying what, where. Uh -huh. when. These, I mean, the elements, you know, nobody never, did they ever say that Earth doesn't change or, you know, or that it's just that it has a, a certain quality to it. Yeah, you have the text mm -hmm. there, Eric. Well, I do, but I mean, it seems that this fits in with the system of views. They had a view of there being some sort of really existent form or, sure. or, or moment, depending which hobby, you know. Sure. Like they did have some ultimate view of some existing thing that it seems this is pushing back against, like well, twisting Svabhava. Yeah, well, you know, interestingly, if you read the other chapters that were for tonight, the author uh, comes around to this whole issue of like, well, there's something there that's empty. And he's not saying that there's no chairs and tables and there's no phenomena. This guy, yeah, the, the yeah, one we're looking at. He's very much an anti-nihilist. He, he's really yeah, hard yes. against nihilism. So, so when what, you know, the line between his presentation of so-called conventional reality and Vasubandhu's, it's not, it's not a huge distance, maybe. Chris? I think it's... Um... It's the question should be less um, is this what the Abhidharmas actually meant and more do the Abhidharmas present something else that can fill this void? You know, you're, a, a failure to do ontology doesn't get you out of the need for your system to have an ontology in it. So I, I had a, a philosophy professor who said, you always have to assume that your audience is like stupid and mean and will interpret everything that you write in, in like the worst possible light 
and 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 maybe that's what Nagarjuna is doing here. Um, and and you know they if if they didn't if they didn't put something in their system to prevent it from being read in this way, then I think those are the consequences that they have to deal with. That's interesting. Yeah. Just just because ontology is is you know fundamental, you, you can't get out of not doing it. Yeah, that's so, that's an interesting idea. That whole idea that the fact that they didn't clarify the reality status of phenomena that they were identifying in an otherwise uh, in a way that otherwise would indicate a phenomenal an ontologically real existing ultimate thing, then. They've they've misled us. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, they're they're pretty systematic, and they they didn't leave out too many details. So you you kind of have to assume that like there's no hidden ontological perspective that they're just not serving up. Well, the the they and what the they did is, I'm I'm not. I'm not totally convinced, you know, let, we, we should look at like even the book that uh, Kevin is, Kevin, the guy next to Kevin, Eric, is referring to on my screen. <laughs> uh, Vasubandhu's that because our screens are all different, so I know, it's reality. I know, I know, but my screen is ultimately real. <laughs> and... Um, you know, in that in that text, they basically just go through definitions of phenomena, and to say that their definitional methodology leads to an ontology, I'm not sure that you can fault them for having misled us in that way. But I don't know. We should let's definitely look at it. I'll circulate a few uh, selections for next week, and let's look at it from that point of view. Unless, like, Eric, do you have something, you know, can you read, like, what's the definition of form or, you know, how is it presented? Probably easier if we look at it. Why don't we wait till next week and we'll all look at it in the interim. Okay, so continuing with this guy, something that does not exist um, by self-existence cannot be a cause since it is not real. The only possible... Relationship between things existing by self-existence are total identity and complete disconnection. Okay, so these it creates this very extreme black and white situation where things are either identical or the same, or there's one of them, or everything's different, and they have no interaction. Uh, why don't we skip to Asti? Asti, Asti's. Asti, isn't that like an Italian drink? Asti, spumati or something. It is, or there is. And it is not. Nasty. That's nasty. <laughs> or there is not. Also become technical terms for Nagarjuna, since only what exists through Sabhava is real, and only something real can be destroyed and not exist is and is not are not opposites <laughs> as in eternalism versus total non-being <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny but it is is and is not are not opposites as in eternalism versus total non-being I don't quite understand you know there's 
I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of typos in this book. It's a little disconcerting. That is, Asti and Nas Nasty do not simply contrast what exists permanently real because of Sobhava and completely non-existent. Asat. Rather, for Nagarjuna, is not, is a change in is. The, the destruction of something that was and is. Thus, it is not depends on their first being and it is something that never Something that never existed, like Santa Claus, cannot be said to not exist since they never exist in the first place. The Chandrakir to the idea of a son of a barren woman is mere words, and denying that such sons exist is not a real negation, but merely the denial of the possibility of imagining the real, etc., etc., etc. Skipping to the next paragraph, what is empty of Swabhava neither is nor is absolutely unreal, like the horns of a rabbit. Okay, how about bhava? A bhava is anything in the phenomenal world. Compound entities like chariots are the classic example. Chariots, you know, probably chariots first came into existence just in the in the time of the Buddha, and that's why they were, they were such a preoccupation as an object, always talking about them. They were the latest thing that was going around for the rich. You know, he was... A, king or prince it is uh, to be real it must have self-existence it is then an existent it can be any kind of self-existent being capacity attribute or object in the widest possible sense it is anything in the phenomenal world that we think can be an object of awareness but a bhava can be real only if it exists through self-existence without self-existence it is not real it does not exist except conventionally. I don't know if this is helping any of these definitions. This one in particular. Since to be a real, to be real, a bhava must exist through self-existence. And since there is in fact no self-existence, there are no real bhavas. From the ultimate point of view, conventional bhavas are impermanent in nature. Thus, Nagarjuna is not denying entities altogether, but arguing that the idea that they are really, that they really are self-existent, arises only from the root ignorance, which is real. He is disputing their nature, not their existence in the ordinary sense. So we, we have the introduction of an interesting scheme of conventional level. And the whole uh, idea of conventional and ultimate is obviously a huge issue. And, uh, you know, th the way that this author presents ultimate and conventional and the way that he presents the philosophy of emptiness of Nagarjuna, don't take this as the ultimate, so to speak, presentation or the the you know, the best possible explanation. Uh, let's skip a bhava. How about dharmas? Let's look at, uh, these are the factors of the experienced world according to the general Buddhist analysis of reality. They're not eternal in nature, but last only momentarily and arise 
independently. They are not the same as bhavas. Bhavas are conventional entities. Dharmas are the ultimate components of what we experience. Thus, both are impermanent and dependently arisen. But bhavas are a matter of conventional truths, and the analysis of dharmas is a matter of ultimate truths. So we have there's this odd situation going on where this author is defining and talking about things sometimes from the Madhyamaka point of view and sometimes from the Abhidharma point of view. And here he seems to be taking the Abhidharma point of view and defining what dharmas are. So dharmas are real existence. And real existence are impermanent. Buddhists analyze the phenomenal world, assuming that their ultimate parts are real in a way that the composite entities we see in the everyday world are not. But while us Westerners have looked for the ultimate units of objective matter, the Buddhists have looked for the ultimate units remaining within the realm of what is experienced. Hence, matter becomes only a minor category in the Abhidharma's catalog of components. The Sarvastavads had a liberate, elaborate taxonomy of 75 dharmas, of which Rupa was only one. That's not true. I don't think that's right. Indeed, Rupa relates only to our experience of things and not to matter in itself or energy. It is about the forms that we directly experience, not any possible substance behind them. How about drishti? Let's keep running through these. This term comes from a root meaning to see, drish. It is a way of seeing the world. A drishti, drishti, is a point of view, but it is not merely an experiential perspective. It is also a way of understanding what it's seeing. So it's not just a perceptual seeing, but it's a, a cognitive or conceptual understanding a metaphysical view. But to Nagarjuna, it is not any metaphysical or speculative view. Only views based on the metaphysics of self-existence qualify as drishti. Therefore, drishti is a negative term. This indicates incorrect or false understanding. Nagarjuna always connects drishti to swabhava, or the reality connected to Swabhava. Thus, anyone who... Is this, is, is this the, uh, uh, the origin of the way view is used in uh, Madhyamaka? Like, the view... That's a, that's a great question. That's a really essential question. My understanding is that when they talk about the view, they use a different term. Because drishti is almost always used as a negative, as wrong view. Okay. As so this, author is, this author is just using the word view to describe drishti, not using view as Madhyama uses. Yeah, well, the idea... I'm sorry. I was sorry. I was just going to ask you, when you mentioned that they use, that a different word is used, what's the different word? Yeah, I'm trying to think of that. 
I know because the word Tibet. There's also the, I mean, they seem to, in some ways, the Majamakans debunk view altogether. Right. The question is whether they accept any kind of view. Clearly, they don't, if there's a specific type of view, what they seem to be saying that, you know, views connected to Svabhava are the ones that they're using this drishti for. Yeah, the last sentence in this paragraph is very interesting. Oh, yeah, it's the thing about, uh, you know, people who don't understand emptiness as a view. People who believe in emptiness are even dumber than cows or something. Right, right. The old story. Does anyone who treats emptiness as a drishti is incurable? To treat emptiness as a view would make it the very poison that the concept is advanced to cure. You think the idea of having like correct or the middle way view is a, a much later um, idea. And or the not even a middle, such. which the sort of no view at all, isn't that sort of where they end up? That's much more where they end up, and then uh, which is very different from having a developing the view as in view meditation and, and conduct sort of thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a different term for view, but I don't know quite what it is. Uh, Prapancha, conceptual projection is an important term. It's projecting onto what is truly real. The, he says the, I'm going to change that to our conceptual differentiations we ourselves devise and thereby seeing reality in terms of discrete entities or seeing reality in terms of our conceptual framework. Translators has rendered the term projection of plurality, conceptual construction, that's the, the most common one, hypostasized, whatever, objectification, reification, and superimposition. That's a fun one. It makes our subjective mental discriminations into features of objective reality. That's a key statement. Making our subjective discriminations into features of objective realities is propancha. In other words, projecting our concepts onto reality projection in the way that Chung Prabhupada uses it. In this way, we create a false world of differentiated, isolated objects corresponding to our conceptual creations. I think he should have said a world of differentiated, isolated, real, intrinsically existing things. The nature of the conventional world is born from propancha. So propancha is pretty much synonymous with conventional conventional reality. In effect, we see objects in the real world mirroring our concepts. In other words, it is seen our concepts as instantiated in the real world. When he says it, I think he means um, through propancha, we see our concepts manifesting as the phenomena appearing to us. Thus, we create the conventional world, but that's a key statement. The conventional world is only our own creation. But at this point, there are they talking about it simply that, you know, it's the rose-colored glasses that we wear that we're seeing the world as rose-colored, or is he, are they, they're not quite at the level here of saying the external is actually non-existent and 
conceived by or is yeah well that's a big question and and it's described differently by different people in uh, in our reading for tonight uh this gentleman described it in a certain way uh let's see i'm i'm always looking for clarity on how people when when people get into that topic and rarely do you find any level of precision about that <laughs> Yeah, so skipping to shunya, something that is shunya is empty of svabhava. It does not concern being empty of matter. It's a metaphysical emptiness of anything that gives something the power to be, not a space empty of all material things. Nothing is self-created or contained. It is an expansion of the Buddhist idea of non-self, more broadly to all things, etc., etc., how about tattva, reality as it truly is? Now, that's a sticky subject. What then is actual reality, tattva? And the author in the essays put forward this idea that Nagarjuna presents that there is tattva, which I was a little bit surprised to see. I don't know if anyone else was tattva. Tattva is literally the thatness of things. Yatabhutam is uh, it comes from the flintstones and uh, dharmata convey the idea of the true nature of things so three terms that are related tatwa thusness of things yata butam is uh, the way things are he didn't translate it did he and dharmata is the uh, uh, qualityness uh, tattva is not a transcendent reality, but the phenomenal world as it really is, empty of any swabhava. Thus, isness, asti, ta, is not a synonym. We must pass beyond isness and is notness to see what is truly real. So, tattva is, is an attempt to describe the way things are beyond the inaccuracies of propancha that projects a world full of bhavas and swabhavas and so forth. The characteristic of what is actually real is this, not dependent on another, peaceful, free of being projected upon by conceptual projections, as if things are, are actually impacted by our concepts. That's an odd thing to say. Anyway, I shouldn't say that. Um, free of thoughts that make distinctions and without multiplicity whatever arises dependently upon another thing is not that thing nor is it different from that thing therefore it is neither annihilated nor eternal not one, not diverse not annihilated and not eternal Tatwa is free of any discrete parts that we normally cut the world up into it does not have the sharp artificial borders that our conceptual differentiation suggests. Nagarjuna is a realist in the sense of affirming a reality independent of our individual minds. And this is this author's take on conventional reality, according to Nagarjuna. And this is why, at the beginning, I encouraged you to challenge everything you see and hear. Because I didn't 100% agree with this author's presentation. I was so, going to ask you, where where are our independent minds and where is this reality? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
Because that sounds like two discrete things. It does. It's a little bit silly. Um, the guardian is a realist in the sense of affirming a, a reality independent of our individual minds. You know, so here we have an, an example of one scholar who's trying to like make sense of and convey the two truths. And um, the task for us is to dis discern to what extent it makes sense or not, and not to not to discern to what extent we understand what he's saying, but to, to take the next step and see, based on our understanding of what he's saying, does it really is he really saying it correctly? Although reality is not cut up and independent into the entities we conceptualize, while his opponents are realists with regard to discrete entities, Tatwa could be called empirical reality. Although Nagarjuna would reject dividing it up into illusory discrete objects, thus, <laughs> wait, um, I thought. He was Nagarjuna was affirming a reality independent of our individual mind. So that reality independent of our individual mind is not divided up into discrete objects. It's just like one big thing. One big monolith. <laughs> <laughs> Thus Nagarjuna would reject any correspondence theory of truth for claims from the ultimate point of view. Nor does Nagarjuna reject empirical experience, sense experience of the phenomena, or is insightful. He simply wants to correct our experiences of the world to see what is really there. Those who see reality do not form the dispositions underlying the actions that propel the cycling of rebirth. They are liberated. How about truth, satya? Classical Indians do not differentiate truth and reality. Whatever has the power to bring about effects or to be affected is true slash real. This is an interesting response to Cynthia's question of earlier. What does real mean? But also what's interesting is that this is a, there's two different words that they're using related to real or reality. One is tattva and the other one was sat, right? Yeah. yeah. For what it's worth, I don't know. <clears throat> yeah. The Garshna says the Abhidharmas are committed by the concept of Swabhava to the position that what is real or has being is permanent, unchanging, unconnected. But according to the Garshna, nothing in the phenomenal world in fact has being. Parma Arta Satya, ultimate truth, truths from the highest point of view are the means of gaining the highest goal, liberation from the cycling of rebirth and full alignment. At least he's, he's included in here, like, what's the purpose of identifying what the ultimate truth is? Separate from, like, what that ultimate truth might be, like, why go about this process? And the answer is that by understanding what is ultimate, what is ultimately real or true, it's, I don't know if you can, if it's helpful to say what is ultimately real, but what, what is ultimately true. Uh, results in liberation. They are truths from the point of view that gives the final ontological status of things, i.e. no further analysis would modify or correct these truths. These thus correct truths are truths about the phenomena of the world from the point of view of how things really are, free of our concepts. Tatwas. Tatwatas. <laughs> But expressing ultimate truths depends on our conventions. There are truths that can be stated with our concepts about how things really are, etc., etc., etc. 
um, conventional truth, last one, conventional truths are truths about what we take to be conventionally real, truths about the content of the phenomenal world in terms of discrete entities. They are part of the more encompassing conventional practices of the world. One meaning of samvriti involves concealing, hiding, or obscuring, playing hide and seek. So Tibetan Buddhists see conventional truths as concealer truths, cloaking the way reality truly is and obstructing ultimate truth. It's like in Star Trek when they have the cloaking device for the Klingons and they can't be seen. Thus, conventional truths are true, but are deceptive truths. That's the most interesting and odd statement. Conventional truths are truths, but are deceptive truths. Because there's a whole argument of like, well, are conceptual truths actually truths or not? And, you know, maybe there's really only ultimate truth and there isn't conventional truth is a is an oxymoron. Or a contra uh, not an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. I remember being at a retreat up in Maine ages and ages ago when somebody was telling a story that they, I guess, the question of ultimate and relative truth in some way was presented to, he, this storyteller said, to Trungpa Rinpoche, and his response is, there's only one truth. I don't know if you ever heard him say that, but that's that's... That that would have been my that's my response to this whole issue is is that there is only one truth the ultimate truth and that that makes it hard to give someone directions to a place though you know <laughs> engineering would have trouble with it as well probably <laughs> you know that's, that's what always comes to me it's like I think of the track worker you know my well you know. She, she said Maine you know if you've ever been Maine in Maine they don't give you the directions correctly you can't get there from here. <laughs> so let's go back to the second of the two readings for tonight, which was emptiness, the philosophy of Nagarjan, and look at a little few selected passages from that. So starting on page 136, let's see. Um, a few lines down on the from the top of the page, Nagarjuna has a specific ontology based on Buddhist notions of becoming a metaphysics of emptiness, Junyata, that contrasts with the metaphysics of self-existence, so a bhava that he ascribes to Abhidharma. Buddhist, he sees Abhidharmas as derailing Buddhist metaphysics by making the Dharma self-existent. According to him, the Abhidharma's notion of self-existence entails a world that is permanent, unchanging, and disconnected. He always sees the downside of things, you know? Uh, let's see. The next paragraph, Nagarjuna accepts self-existence, lack of change, and permanence as the legitimate criteria for what is ultimately real. On the next page, the first full paragraph, the only alternative to a phenomenal world of Swabhava metaphysics, according to Nagarjuna, is a world empty of self-existence, i.e. emptiness. A world free of any abiding self-existent parts can proceed the way we see it doing. Things constantly changing, interacting, being causally efficacious, arising and falling. Ontologically distinct entities could not explain the continuity of change that we see. And so dharmas must be connected and not 
I think he means not self-existent, although my book says no self-existent. Nor do we see anything arise without a cause, and what arises from cause and conditions is neither the same as nor different from those causes and conditions. Nothing exists in and of itself. Nothing has a self-given existence or nature. Nothing real thought is involved there. There are no real self-existent cause or effects. Persons who are being liberated are bound, etc., etc. Nothing ceases or is eternal. The phenomenal world is a series of impermanent interconnected parts, and the series itself is also devoid of anything permanent and eternal. Hence, it too is not real in the sought sense. Indeed, from the highest point of view, there is neither permanence nor impermanence, since there are no real self-existent entities that could be either permanent or impermanent. In addition, if there is no permanence, there is nothing to contrast impermanence with, and so there is nothing probably described as impermanent. Thus, other, uh, under either metaphysics, there is no real change. Under Sobhava metaphysics, real change Sorry, real things are permanent and immutable and so cannot change under Shunyata metaphysics. Things, whatever they are, are empty of self-existence and so there's no real, nothing real, sorry, to change nor any changes themselves. And then let's see one last uh, little excerpt on the next page, 138, in the middle of the first paragraph. It says, phenomena depend on cause and conditions. They do not exist through their own self-existence as independent entities, nor are they totally non-existent, but are something in between. An actor and action are interdependent, and thus neither can be established as real as a middle way between eternal permanence and complete annihilation or non-existence. Everything in the phenomenal world under an emptiness metaphysics is impermanent, changing, constantly interconnected. Everything is unarisen and unceasing because there are no real self-contained entities in the world that could arise or cease for the same reason. Nothing is either eternal or annihilated. There is no unchanging self-existent core, and this is, the op this is the opposite of anything existing by Swabhava. Everything is free of any abiding substance or unchanging essential properties, nor is anything constructed out of discrete real parts. Thus, all are clear of, in, of differentiations that could be grasped. Reality is peaceful or still, since it is free of distinct parts banging into each other. I love that. Clanging, all that clanging that comes about from things, inter, you know, causes and conditions. They make a lot of noise when they interact. That that dependent arising is a very noisy process. Enough already. Okay, free of conceptual projections or the thoughts that make distinctions without the multiplicity of distinct entities. It's not one, not diverse, not an island, an eternal phenomena that arise dependently upon other phenomena are not identical to those things, nor are they completely distinct from those things. How many of you achieved enlightenment when you read this? Okay, just checking. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's supposed to do, right? These descriptions. Okay. Uh, the question is, did you find parts of the reading that you disagreed with?
Okay, so there was an interesting section on views, on Nagarjuna's views that I'd like to look at. And that happens on page 147. The final verse of the fundamental verses, which is his translation of the Mulamadyamaka Karikas, or MK, presents this. I bow to Gautama, the Buddha. Where did, I'm sorry, where did you go? Uh, 147, the top. I bow to Gautama, the Buddha, who through compassion taught the doctrine for removing all views. So is Nagarjuna claiming that he himself has no views? Drishtis. In addition, in overturning the objections, another text by Nagarjuna, he claims to have no thesis. In the jewel garland of advice, he speaks of propositions the same way. Here he uses views in the way I, I thought he used it previously when we were talking about uh, views, drishtis. As a and, negative. Yes, but as a, as a philosophical position, a, a view, as a philosophy. That's right, he is. Yeah, so I was here. Yes, yes, definitely. So I was responding as saying that the the idea of view as being a possibly positive thing, as in view meditation and action, or understanding the view, is a much later introduction into the tradition. And I wasn't and am not sure like when and where that introduction happens and what term is being used because I don't think they would use Dhrishti because Dhrishti is by definition a false it's a false view so when you look at the 51 samskaras or mental factors uh, one of those is views and the term actually is Dhrishti and it's often translated as wrong views and it includes five views of the the uh, wrong view of the transitory collection as being the basis of the of the person, and uh, the wrong view of not understanding cause and effect, and the wrong view of thinking that any particular single type of practice is the ultimate salvation. <laughs> And uh, thinking that one's own view is practice. superior, except for <laughs> except for Cynthia's <laughs> magic word. So, however, in the same line of the Karikas, where he speaks of removing all views, he speaks of the Buddhist doctrine, Dharma. You know, overturning the objections, he speaks of emptiness as a doctrine, Vada. So he's translated two different terms into the same English term. Doctrine, Vada, Dharma. And in the Jewel Garland, he again claims to have no thesis to be defended, but proceeds to discuss the Buddhist doctrine. He doesn't give the Sanskrit, unfortunately. Thus, when he advances what looks like a philosophical thesis, all entities are empty, and then denies he has any thesis, it has the paradoxical feel of someone saying, I am not talking right now. I like that. 
Uh, this all suggests that he paradoxically claims to have no views at all. That is, all views, including the Garjanas, are relegated to the conventional level from the ultimate point of view. Even the claim, all entities are empty, has to be rejected as simply being another view. In the direct experiential realization of the emptiness of things, all conceptual views must be given up. Even seeing the world as empty, since the mind must be freed of all conceptualizations. However, in the Karikas, Nagarjuna also connects views to self-existence, suggesting that it only claims about self-existing entities or their absence. I think that's supposed to be, it is only... Suggesting that it is only claims about self-existent entities or their absence that qualify as the views that are to be removed. That's what they said in view. definition also. Yeah. In the more informal, Jewel Garland, the Garjan also connects false views with the idea that karma causes do not affect and right views with karma causes having effects. But he also connects propositions with existence and non-existence. Equally important, he also explicitly disconnects emptiness from views, and emptiness is not connected to is or is not. Under this interpretation, which the Tibetan Galupas endorse, they have the full endorsement, stamp of approval of the Galupas, um, the Garjana espoused philosophical positions views in the non-technical everyday sense, stating that, starting rather with the first verse of the Karikas, but he had no views in the technical sense of a position connected to self-existence. If he had a proposition, a counter-proposition would be derivable from it, but both would thereby be false. Nagarjan is merely making known the emptiness of things without being committed to any view. The term emptiness is employed merely to inform us of the emptiness of things, not to affirm the existence of a new substance replacing self-existent entities. He can say he has established the emptiness of things in detail while still maintaining that this is not a thesis. But emptiness cannot be used to refute views since it is a conclusion from other refutations, not a self-existing reality itself. So... Um, is that a way of saying emptiness is also empty? Yeah, the last. We could say that. Yeah, we could say that. There is the empty. Cannot be used to refute views, since it is a conclusion from other refutations, and is not itself an actual view. And so, in conclusion of this section on one forty nine, that last paragraph. Either way, um, does not reject all philosophical positions, but only those connected to Svabhava and Sat. The three important points are first, that emptiness is not an entity of any type or its absence. Your sound has changed a bit. I don't know if that's just me, but. No, it, it did change. My battery is running low, so I had to charge in the power cord. And if I have that plugged in along with my headphones, then. The three important points are first that emptiness is not an entity of any type or its absence, so we cannot have a view about it. Emptiness is the conclusion reached when Svabhava has been rejected, and thus is not itself a thesis to be defended. 
Second, we need to get beyond the conceptualizing mind, including the framework of emptiness to see reality that truly is. And third, nothing in this, this work suggests that ultimate truths weren't in any way false. Mr. Gardner has an ontological doctrine, even if he has no doctrine in the sense of a view dependent upon self-existent entities. A little bit of a uh, controversial thing to say, but okay. Does Nagarjuna hold the view? It's a big question that a lot of people try to spend a lot of time talking about. I didn't really like his presentation on the two truths. I thought that was the weakest part of his presentation. And let's see. On page 154, the end of this overlapping paragraph, he uh, starts to sum up some important things. Nagarjuna never gives a blanket condemnation of all language while offering emptiness as the way to still the mind of the Kalpa and Prapancha. The Kalpa is discriminating uh, discursive thoughts or something like that. In fact, all Nagarjuna says concerning language relates to three things. First, no real reference exists in the world for words to denote. Names and what is named do not exist from the ultimate point of view. So there's no reference to names. Second, concepts operate by contrast and thus pairs of related concepts are interdependent. And third, all statements are empty of self-existence, but they can still function. They can still be used. That would be helpful little summary of that. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. So, I, I'm, I'm inclined to do something radical and uh, replace the reading of the next of the remaining essays with uh, a reading from this book by Jan. Jan Westerhoff, right, called Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka. You like this book, Chris? This is a good present analysis of Nagarjuna. And he has a wonderful chapter on Swabhava, interpretations of Swabhava, that I think is just so helpful because he breaks it down into, into the different ways that Swabhava is talked about. And um, I was disappointed that Jones didn't do that. Go in, in real detail about the, the, the nuances of Swabhava. I think that's critical. So I'm going to circulate that as a PDF. And I apologize for doing that instead of using the main book. And um, it's sort of long, so I, I think I think the last part of it is not that helpful. So I'll indicate which pages I'd like us to read, but I'll I'll provide the whole chapter. 
So, any other comments or thoughts or questions or suggestions? No need to apologize for introducing additional readings. Good. Anything else? Christopher, where are you tonight? Are you in like a shed, like the tool shed? I'm in a jungle. Yeah. No, that's me. I'm, I'm in the shop oh. in Hudson. You're in the shower room? In in uh, outbuilding, uh, the, the last year, year before, there was like a big Victorian house I was at. Yeah, you're this in the, is the outbuilding. So this is kind of it's full of junk, yeah. and some of it's her stuff, and a lot of it's mine. <laughs> I so I kind of live in two places. <laughs> okay, and Chris is living in the jungle, and Amelia is living in a a fuzzy world and I live I live in a blind in a, in a, <laughs> I always have that's, that's your commitment to having no view that's right this is a statement this is the view of no view <laughs> and then it's like in, it's like you live in when you live in New York City you know and people always have like this one window the, the blind is shut and then like finally like you're dying to know what's there and you open the window and there's a brick wall right <laughs> Anyway, let's conclude by uh, dedicating your marriage. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the oceans and sorrow, and may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the Pleiades, may the lotus garden of every dangerous country, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enter the profound. Thank you. Take care. Thank Be well. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you.